What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Sunday, July 16th, 2023. And tonight we're talking about a Cardinals series win over the Washington Nationals as it took another rain delay. You had one each of the games over the weekend. But Sunday, the Cardinals fought through the raindrops and were able to come away with an 8-4 to win over Washington. And I swear I had to triple check this after the game to make sure I wasn't making a mistake. But the Cardinals have now won five of their last seven. That's a real stat. They take two of three over D.C. They took two of three over the White Sox right before the All-Star break, and they won the final game in Miami. So five wins in their last seven games. It absolutely does not feel like it, but that's a pretty good stretch. I mean, if you win five of seven over and over again until the end of the season, that would get the Cardinals almost to 90 wins. I think that put them right around 89 if they were able to accomplish that week over week, five out of seven the rest of the way. Realistically, I think you played two of the worst teams that you're going to see the rest of the way with the White Sox just being, well, worse than the Cardinals. And uh, the Nationals are bottom dwellers in the NL East. But hey, you take the wins when you can get them. And the fact that the Cardinals have been able to win these games despite some weird things going on, right? You had the, the rain delay issues and the all-star break sandwiched in between. And so a lot going on right now. And I think that's partially why it doesn't feel like 507 because it's a trend that's lasted a week and a half at least because of the all-star break. Had a lot of time off with that. But the Cardinals are, you know, they're where they are. The Brewers have taken over the division over the Reds at this point. And because of that, the Cardinals really haven't gained much at all in terms of ground within the division. They're 5-5 five and five in their last 10. The Reds, 10 days ago, or 10 games ago, I think, were ahead of Milwaukee. They were in first. And the Reds are 5-5 five and five in their last 10. So the Cardinals have basically not picked up anything on Cincinnati. And the Brewers have been hot beating up on the Reds, in fact, recently. And so that's led to Milwaukee now being two games clear of Cincinnati in the division. The Cardinals are still 11 and a half games back. They're going to have to do that five and two trick several more times, I think, before we can even begin to entertain the idea that the Cardinals could be in this thing. But they won their 40th game tonight. That's at least a plus. Like I said, 11 and a half games back. Just mediocre across the board. It's been a lot of time on last night's B-Shape Daily talking about the fundamentals and the issues that kind of put the Cardinals into this predicament in the first place, especially as it pertains to Wilson Contreras' role in some of that. It's been pitching. It's been some fundamental issues from the team. But I'll say this for Sunday. The Cardinals played a pretty complete game at Bush Stadium. Jack Flaherty was good. Was it the final time we'll see him as a Cardinal at Bush Stadium? We'll talk about that tonight on the show. We'll talk about just the overwhelmingly good day the offense had. A lot of positives to take away. How much of it do we believe is prescriptive of what we could see from this lineup going forward? Make sure you guys are subscribed on YouTube. YouTube.com slash at bshafer12. The Brendan Schaefer St. Louis Cardinals writer YouTube channel is where we are. Get those comments in. Let me know what you're thinking. What you're feeling about the Cardinals. Is that the last time we saw Jack Flaherty? as a home starter for St. Louis. I mean, he's going to be pitching if he's still on the roster, which I don't think they're going to trade him just yet. But five days from now, Cardinals will be in Chicago taking on the Cubs next weekend, so he'll be slated to go in that series. But at Bush Stadium, very well possible that this was Jack Flaherty's last start. I think he went out on a solid note if that was the case, but it was something that he said, hey, not really giving any thought to that and is just 
giving some boilerplate answers, go out there and try to give the team a chance to win. That's what he said he was doing on Sunday. That's what he said he's done ever since he came up with the Cardinals first on six years ago, and that's uh, what he'll continue to do as long as he's in this uniform. But as far as the trade talks, it doesn't seem like he's letting on anyway that it's something he's given a whole heck of a lot of thought to. But on our side of the conversation, we can do just that right here on YouTube. So get those comments in. Make sure you like this video and subscribe to the channel for more Cardinals content the rest of the way. And if you'd like to use other platforms like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can search Be Shafe Daily in those locations and follow or subscribe accordingly. Leave a five-star review if you'd be so kind as well. And to take your support of the channel to the next level, you can do that at patreon.com slash bshafer12. We actually put up a new article to the Patreon earlier this weekend talking about who should be untouchable for the Cardinals. I know it's a topic that we've discussed here, but if you want a little bonus content, Patreon's a great place to go for that and appreciate it when you help support my work and the channel and everything like that. But let's go ahead and get into a discussion of Sunday afternoon's game. Had the rain delay mixed in there, it wasn't a very lengthy one. I don't think they even gave the official time, so I don't remember offhand. About an hour probably is what it seemed. And ultimately, the Cardinals got it done after the rain delay as well. But a lot of credit goes to Jack Flaherty and to the Cardinals' offense for a nice day on Sunday. We'll start with the pitching performance. Flaherty looked really sharp, especially through the first five innings of this game. Gave up one home run. That was kind of the lone mark against him through the first five innings. Kybert Ruiz lofting one just inside the fair pole there uh, down the right field line for a solo shot. And that was really all that Jack Flaherty allowed until... He got into some trouble there in the sixth inning. A second inning bomb by Ruiz. Other than that, Flaherty was sharp. Fastball command always seems to be the telltale sign with him. And it's been sharper lately, and it was especially sharp today, I thought, along with setting up the breaking pitches. He was able to pick up seven strikeouts today, so had it work. And he was really cruising until getting into that sixth inning. And things just kind of went off the rails a little bit there. Gapper to C.J. Abrams, and that dude can fly. One of the guys that came over to Washington in the Juan Soto trade last July with uh, with the San Diego Padres, Abrams has not been a, a very good hitter necessarily at the big league level, but he's starting to come around. He's got the OPS up to 719, a former top prospect uh, batting leadoff and playing shortstop for the Nats, but he can fly. He had the triple against Flaherty, and then Jack Flaherty, I think where he does get into trouble sometimes, even still when he when he looks sharp, he still seems to cough up a couple of ill-timed walks, and that's what happened in the sixth inning. He ended up walking two, and the first one was costly because it came around to score on a double to shallow right center field. Lars Newbar had a beat on it. I don't disagree at all with the decision that he made on, uh, I believe it was Dominic Smith was the batter, to just absolutely go for it, lay out, and try and make an, an exceptional play to end the inning. It just kind of glanced off of his glove, went on by into uh, deeper into the center field area. Jordan Walker was there to back it up, but a couple of runs came around to score on that double. Like I said, if Newpar ends up making a sensational play, Jack Flaherty leaves this game after six innings allowing just one run and feeling pretty good about himself. But that one change uh, added to the ledger against Jack. So he gave up three runs, three runs over six innings, it's still a quality start. Credit to him, even after walking a second batter there later in the inning, was able to kind of wiggle out of further damage. And at the time, that was important because it was a 4-3 to three game for the Cardinals. They had the lead still, uh, but they wouldn't have if, if it would have gone any further there in the top of the sixth. But credit to this offense because we've talked a lot about how maybe they've felt at times this year that they were behind the eight ball because of 
the lack of performance from the starting rotation early in a game if a starting pitcher for St. Louis would give up a bunch of runs. We've heard that used, some fans would say, as an excuse by Aldi Marmel. Others would say, you know, it's reasonable to think that time after time, if your offense is asked to make up these grand deficits early on, their heads might not be in it. Their belief in themselves and their team might not be as high as it should be. Like, you always want a resilient bunch, but I think at times we talk about human nature. It can be realistic to just expect those days to maybe be duds if your rotation gives up early runs in the first couple of innings and it's a crooked number and you feel like you can't make your way back from that. Nice to see in this instance that the offense, after a little bit of a blip there in the top of the sixth, immediately striking back in the bottom half of the inning, not only with the two runs that the Washington Nationals took in the top of the inning, but with two more as well. Paul Goldschmidt, a 443-foot home run to dead straightaway center field, up very near the tippy top of Freeze's lawn. I thought was one of the longest home runs I've seen to straightaway center. I thought at first he might clear the entire lawn and uh, didn't quite do that. Asked after the game what he liked about the at-bat that led to the home run, he grinned and said the result, <laughs> which was a very kind of deadpan, but like in a way that only Paul Goldschmidt could do because he did flash a smile as he said it. But I think it was just sometimes he's taken aback by exactly the way he wants to go about answering a question. And that was just, that was perfect. He went on to say more about it than that. But at first he just said the result. I like the result, which was a fair answer. And uh, I think he was also asked if he's ever hit a ball that far. And he's like, honestly, I don't know. He doesn't pay attention to that stuff is uh, one thing that I think Cardinals fans would believe about him. He's not too caught up in those details. He helped the team win today. And that is very much uh, a Paul Goldschmidtian type of view of these sorts of things. But his home run was nice to see. The one in the fifth inning from Nolan Gorman was nice to see. He cleared the bullpen, the Cardinal bullpen in right field. I think he got a row or two over top of the bullpen for his 18th home run of the season. And that's really nice to see in particular just because of the way it had been trending for Nolan Gorman. And I know that everything we talk about now is kind of going to have to be through that trade deadline lens because this is a Cardinals team that we expect is going nowhere. I mean, they won the series this weekend against the Nats. They're still only three games above the Nationals in the standings. And that kind of does matter because the draft could end up being where the Cardinals are positioned and uh, looking to maybe have some more ping pong balls. It is a lottery this year, I think, for the first time. Did they do the lottery last year? I don't know. They're doing it this year, and it'll be interesting to see. I believe the top three teams, which means like the three worst teams in MLB, all get the same number of ping pong balls, and then it's like a sliding scale after that. The Royals and the Athletics are guaranteed to be the worst two, I think. But beyond that, probably the Rockies, maybe the Nash. I'm just saying, if the Cardinals trade away Flaherty and Montgomery, there's it's not outside the realm of possibility that the Cardinals could be like the third worst team in baseball. I tend to believe they're going to be trending in the other direction. That was kind of the theme of the postgame on Sunday, which was, hey, this was the type of game where you get pretty solid starting pitching. Your offense scores in multiple innings, scores in bunches. I think they had like five singles in a single inning at one point in this game. I mean, they really were doing their job at the plate and it was up and down the lineup. The case one through three in the lineup, Donovan Goldschmidt, Newpark combined to go five for 11 with four walks as well. That gives you a really good chance to get some damage done 
when your top three are doing that. The only guy in the Cardinals starting lineup that did not get a hit today was Arenado, and he he gave one a ride to center field at one point. I'm not too concerned about a, a casual 0 for 4 with just one strikeout. But Jordan Walker ripped a 110-mile-per-hour double over the uh, head of the third baseman. We mentioned the home run by Gorman. That was as part of a two for, or pardon me, a three for five day. Drove in a couple of runs, scored a couple of runs. Paul Young goes two for four. Newpar went one for three with two walks and an RBI. Run scored. Got the OPS up over 750 again at 751. Man, I, I just feel like the Cardinal lineup would be so much better if you had a bonafide slugger in the middle. But then I feel like I've said that too many times about Newpar batting third and how I don't think it's a perfect fit that maybe I am selling him short because I had somebody in the comments on uh, one of the videos that we did. I think I posted it over the weekend. It was from the big show when Andy and I were talking about who should be untouchable on this team. And I talked about how I didn't really think Lars Newpar should necessarily be untouchable, but don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear that as me saying they should trade him. Like, there are names like Logan Gilbert being thrown around, pitcher for Seattle, who would be an absolute splendid fit for the Cardinals. You know, does Dylan Cease get traded at this deadline? There are a lot of names that could come into play. And I, there aren't very many of them that I would say the Cardinals should consider moving Lars Newbar for. But I'm sure there is one that could come up that I would say, well, I don't know if it's a perfect idea, but are you completely closed off to the notion? He's a 751 OPS good above average outfield defense at any position really, but can we contextualize that and and call that what it is really good player? Maybe not a generational superstar. Like where, where does the line get drawn on what the Cardinals need to do to find the pitching that they're looking for? That was kind of the point that I was trying to make. And Andy, my co-host, I think agreed with me. You can go back to the video a couple of days ago on YouTube talking about who should be made untouchable. If you want the full context to that conversation, But because of those narratives kind of going around and and the fact that I try to discuss them and and talk about every angle imaginable, I feel like people might be getting the impression that I am a Lars Newpar hater. I really like Lars Newpar. I think he should be a Cardinal for a long, long time. If you've been listening to B-Shape Daily going all the way back to like two off seasons ago, I can remember, I've talked about this before, but being uh, either going to or from spring training, feeling like I was driving, you know, 19, 20 hours from Missouri to Florida or vice versa. And I was like, man, I should just put my phone on the dashboard and do a impromptu podcast here. I can record it from my phone right here on the anchor app, as it was called at the time. And I was doing that. And then there was a spider. It was a whole thing recorded it all. But I said, do not under any circumstances, St. Louis Cardinals consider trading Lars Newbar for Frankie Montas at the time. That was who was, was being kind of rumored and they had just signed Corey Dickerson, and everybody was freaking out, thinking that that meant, oh, you know, the Cardinals signed another left-handed hitting outfielder. They're going to trade Newpar. No, don't. They can't do that. They shouldn't do that. They didn't, to their credit. This past offseason, it was once again the Cardinals and the Oakland Athletics, a rumor flying around, because Montas was on the A's at the time, flying around about Sean Murphy, and, and they were interested in Lars Newpar. and I said, do not do that. Now, I still believe that the Cardinals probably should have just waited around, not jumped at the first free agent catcher they could find, which is Contreras, and he happened to be the most expensive one that they could find. And he's hitting really well right now, and it's going to be great, Cardinals fans. He's going to end up with an 850 OPS, and 
you're just going to absolutely love him, so don't let me be too negative. However, we've seen some of the deficiencies on the defensive side, some of the minutia, the details, the little things when it comes to Contreras this season. And the Cardinals did rush into a big free agent commitment. When it turns out, Andrew Kisner can kind of play. Good ball player. Turns out, maybe this Yvonne Herrera guy is pretty good. So maybe they didn't have to jump right into a big free agent contract. We'll see how that plays out. I, I think it's going to be a very difficult, nuanced conversation to have as the years unfold because it's not going to look via the stats like Wilson Contreras was a bad signing necessarily. But based on the roster construction, my concern might be that it could turn that way. But when it comes to the Oakland A's and the Sean Murphy thing, they could have just said, okay, you want Donovan and Lars Nupar. We don't want to do that. But we'll still trade for Sean Murphy if you get real at some point. But instead they were like, oh man, maybe we could offer one counter offer and then let's go get that other guy because that feels better. I don't want to have to deal with these negotiations. Hyperbole, I don't know what the negotiations were. I don't know how many back and forth offers there were. We only know the things that get publicly reported. And a lot of times, we don't know the full scope of of what actually went on in those negotiations and those conversations. So I'll fully recognize that I have no idea the the scope of those discussions. However, I do think the Cardinals could have tried to wait it out a little bit more for Sean Murphy, who is arguably like playing at an MVP level right now because of what he can do behind the plate as a catcher and at the plate as a batter. He's OPSing nearly 1,000. At least he was coming into the All-Star break. So anyway, yeah, he was the All-Star uh, starter for the National League. Anyway, my whole point was that Lars Newbar shouldn't be a part of that. And I stand by that when it comes to the Lars Newbar thing. But if there is like a, a cost-controlled ace pitcher and, and the only way to get him is to consider a Newbar deal... You know, I was just trying to make the point that I don't think you can dismiss it out of hand. If we're talking about true untouchable, that I take things literally. That means untouchable, and there's no circumstance in which I would trade him. There are very, very few circumstances in which I think the Cardinals should trade Lars Newpar, and he demonstrated a little bit today exactly why he has such a compelling skill set. Going one for three, but then reaching base twice with a walk, he's going to be on base all the time. And demonstrated on... Uh, Friday night, the power hit the home run. That was the early part of game one of the series. The second part of it extended into Saturday afternoon, but hit the home run. He's got six homers now on the season. I think you need to be more like 15 to 20 for Newpar, so he's going to have to get going a little bit. But I think Newpar, 15 to 20 home runs, not a ton of RBIs, but until recently he had been batting more like the the top of the order. And... uh Five stolen bases, so he'll probably be double digits on on stolen bases as well. And you look at the numbers there. The OPS I mentioned at 751. I want to check out the uh, on-base specifically. On-base is 360. He's just got to slug a little bit more. Like, he was an OBP guy last year, and his on-base is even higher this year. And remember last year, he was kind of splitting time with Corey Dickerson. It was weird. He kept getting sent to Memphis. That was weird. Uh, Newpar did. And as a result, he was hitting like 100 or 150 or something in the first couple of months and finished after a really great second half to 228 was the batting average. But he had a 448 slug. Well, he's about 50, 60 points lower than that right now, slugging just 391. But the on-base up 
from the 340 that he was last year to now 360. And the batting average, he's hitting 262. I expect Lars Newpar to be a 260 some odd hitter with a 360 on base, and I just think he's going to slug 420, blaze it, instead of 391. And that difference, I think, is substantial enough. Now you're a 780 OPS instead of a 750, and he's just above average at everything that he does. So Cardinals should prioritize Lars Newpar, and I don't think they're going to trade him. Derek Gould's had some reporting that he's he's the guy they're looking to build, build around, and I agree with that. I just felt like the narrative was probably building that I'm a, a Newpar hater, when in fact, I was out front as early as anybody ever was to say, no, I think this guy is untouchable even in terms of uh, you know, trading for the pitcher two years ago that they thought they needed. But I also wasn't very high on Frankie Montas, and so that was part of it as well. But nevertheless, you never know when you're going to get a little uh, a sidecar from me, a tangent. There there was one, Lars Newpar. Let me know what you think. Is Lars Newpar untouchable? Should he be for the Cardinals? Chime in on the uh, YouTube comment section, and make sure you like and subscribe. Like the video and then subscribe to the channel. Click the bell to get the notifications so that if you're subscribed to the channel, you'll actually get the videos. If you don't like push notifications to your phone, don't do it. But we do videos pretty much every day, and uh, YouTube will let you know about them if you subscribe and click the bell. So appreciate you guys for being here. As always, if you like Daily Cardinals content, this is the place to be. I, I do kind of tend to believe that, but to each their own. Anyway, let's keep talking about this ball game. Cardinals win it 8-4. to four. Yeah, the lineup, man, like Brendan Donovan had the double to lead off the game. Uh, not the game, but the bottom half of the first inning, he was the leadoff batter. First pitch double, the helmet went flying like it always does. He goes two for four, scores, RBI, reaches via walk, untradeable. He truly is untouchable to me. And pretty soon, I think he's going to be able to start playing the field again instead of just a designated hitter, doing a little more throwing, getting the throwing program going. He is such a good leadoff hitter. And I don't mind the idea of stacking Newtbar right behind him. That is what I would do, I think. Because Newtbar, I just think you want more power in the middle and let the table setters be the table setters at the top. But I understand. They're going left, right, left, right. It makes sense. This lineup is one left-handed stud away from being really, really elite. And that's why I think they really would love to see Nolan Gorman be that guy. But the problem is... Donovan kind of plays second base. Gorman plays second base. Tommy Edmond is your center fielder, apparently, but is a gold glover at second base. Like, those three guys all can hit left-handed. I count Edmond because he's a, a switch hitter. And Edmond, not really the power guy, but Gorman is the power guy. But all three of them play second base, and it's like they're so close to having a really compelling mix because Jordan Walker's going to be a dude he had a lot of uh, moments today, Jordan Walker did, where he swung and missed. I think I was counting five or six, maybe even seven swing and miss from Jordan Walker before he connected on that double. But he's going to be just fine. Hitting 274, OPS 777. Like, he's going to be elite. Alec Burleson, uh, one for five today. Left-handed batter. I mean, if he could get himself into a spot where he's that guy. But again, the Cardinals have this little issue going on where it feels like they have depreciated, depreciated. I don't know if that's a word. An asset depreciates. The Cardinals have depreciated their defensive standard. And I, again, I'm talking about a guy in Burleson who made a, basically a game changing catch yesterday, whether it was robbing a home run or not in the nightcap on Saturday, it was a humongously important catch that saved multiple runs but I'm going to talk about him as maybe a, a guy who is limited defensively. 
just because I feel like not a ton of range generally long-term, would you like to have some more athleticism and, and speed in the outfield perhaps? But like if Alec Burleson as a left-handed hitter could be the guy OPSing 800, like he's 678 right now. So he's a far cry from that. I get it. But if he could be that guy, then the Cardinals wouldn't have him on the trade block ever. They would just say, cool, he's in our lineup every day. But you've got that guy, and then you've got Jordan Walker from the right side, who definitely a higher profile as a hitter, but defensively, you're going to ask where he fits, which kind of has them forced to put Newtbar into center field for the most part. Dylan, by the way, I love they did this. They brought Carlson in late. It was strictly for defense for Jordan Walker after Walker had taken four at-bats. All he said after the game, no, it was just defense, no injury concern with Jordan Walker. But Carlson, when they bring him in, they put him in center field. They put him in center field, and they moved Newtbar to left. It only took three months. It only took three months, but we finally got there, boys and girls. We finally got there where I think the Cardinals just recognized that uh, Carlson's the best defensive center fielder on this team. And by the way, love Brandon Kylie of 101 ESPN. Follow him on Twitter at BK Sports Talk. But he was talking some slander the other day. I know some of you guys saw it where it was, uh, you know, some nerd stuff. He, he had like the, the stat cast or the, I forget what it is. It's like the percentile graph. I know you guys have probably seen him, the player profile. And basically not super favorable on Dylan Carlson in terms of like his defensive range this season and in a few other defensive areas. The metrics don't love him and the job he's done this year is the way I would put it. And uh, I'm sure the metrics love Tommy Edmond because he's got good range in center field. I love Tommy Edmond. I just don't, I just don't think this... I think it's like a brainwashing Colt that we're going to say he's just way better in center field than Dylan Carlson. And we'll see what happens because Edmund, uh, I think, got an injection in the wrist or something like that. He's going to he's gonna be back before too long, hopefully. I'll be interested to see what the Cardinals do defensively with the playing time. Dylan didn't start today, but he filled in as the, uh, the center fielder when he came in there for defense. I just think Dylan is still, even without as much speed and therefore less range, I think he does get good jumps. I think he's a, uh, and people who have listened to me know that I feel this way. But BK was talking the the Dylan slander. I think he's really into Tommy Edmond in center field. I would be into Tommy Edmond playing shortstop, but that's like a band or something in 28 of 50 states or something like that. I don't know that you can Google it or something. But all I did was reply to BK's tweet and I said, ha ha, because he had tweeted, I think it was something to the effect of, I don't understand why, People think Dylan Carlson's a good center fielder. And to me, I've been talking about, he's the best center fielder on the Cardinals. That's all right. BK's doing his show. He's not listening to mine. It's okay. (laughs) But I was like, I got to chime in on that. Otherwise, people are going to start tagging me. But we had fun. I had fun. I told him, no, you know, we're we're both new parents within the last year. BK and his wife just had a a baby. And uh, I said, we're both new parents. I'll let this one go. And by I'll let this one go, I mean I'll see him in the octagon because we're going to have to fight to the death. But my whole point here is that the metrics don't love Dylan Carlson. I don't love the defensive metrics when you have a guy that has been basically benched every opportunity the Cardinals have been able to find to do so. So he hasn't played a lot of center field this year, and so I don't really think I want to look at a small sample size of whatever the newfangled defensive metrics say. 
My eyes tell me he's done a nice job in center field. My eyes told me that last year. I believe the metrics told me that last year as well. But like I said, when it comes to smaller samples, I just want to kind of use those things as maybe a guide. But if it absolutely flies in the face of what I am seeing with my eyes, I'm not afraid to be like, yeah, it's nice that you have those numbers. I'm not really going to care about them, though, until such point that you get a little bit more on the sample. At, at a minimum, I feel like that would need to be it. But we've, I feel like we've seen Dylan play really good center field so far. And even Ricky Horton, I can recall him saying that to his eyes, he has made great strides in center field compared to last year, which I didn't agree with that. I thought he was good last year and good this year. But nevertheless, the Cardinals seem to be coming around on it because he was used as a defensive replacement, essentially. I mean, it was for Jordan Walker, but for Newpar, basically, because... Burleson moved from left to right, Newpar from center to left, and where'd they put Carlson? In center field, where he should be. So I appreciated seeing that. But yeah, going to be really interesting what they do with, with Tommy Edmund. I assume they'll just play him in center field, and Carlson will be back to the bench if he's not traded by then. But it'll be interesting to see, because guys like Burleson, his playing time will get squeezed. And he's been able to show himself not only defensively last night, but offensively the last few days. Had a home run over the weekend. Had a huge game on Saturday night. One for five with a ribby today. Paulie D keeps chugging along with a, a two for four today. OPS at 745. He's got to get to 750 so I can win that $1,000 from the guy on Twitter. But to me, what would make the most sense is to find a way to get Tommy Ebbin a few games at shortstop, play him in the outfield on occasion, but DeYoung doesn't have to play every day. But they've really liked the consistency of DeYoung at short. And anyway, nothing matters, right? We know that at this point. But 13 hits, five washes today for the Cardinals. They score eight runs. It was a nice performance. They've been good recently. It doesn't feel like it because of the weak competition and the fact that there was a four-day all-star break wedged into the middle of it. And then this whole weekend was disjointed. Suspended game Friday, rain delays Saturday, rain delays Sunday. Two out of three, though, if they can continue to win series, you never know. But the problem will come if and when this team ends up getting broken apart due to the front office saying, we got to trade some of these pitchers. And, I mean, if you trade Flaherty and Montgomery from this team, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better unless they also turn around and trade a position player like a second baseman for a starting pitcher that plugs right into the rotation. That could be something that honestly, genuinely... Like, let's say they trade one of Flaherty Montgomery, but for whatever reason, they don't figure out a way to trade the other one. Not for a lack of trying, but let's just say the right deal wasn't there and they figure, let's just give this guy a qualifying offer and, and we'll take the draft pick and we'll keep him in the rotation the rest of the year. Let's say that happens. But they trade a second baseman and some other ancillary pieces, which again, the second baseman are Edmund, Gorman, Donovan. Trading one of those guys would be painful because I think all three are really good players. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating for dangling different guys on the trade block just to unload some guys. It's not how I feel. However, if they were to make a move that trades one position player at a spot where you can afford to do it just based on the lineup construction, like somebody else was clamoring for playing time, and now that guy gets to play more as a result. And then you put that starting pitcher, whoever you get back, Let's say it's somebody that's pretty good, though, because you're trading away a good player. You should get a good one back. Let's say that happens, and that is the guy that fills the Montgomery spot or the Flaherty spot. 
And then the other one's still here. You still have five starters-ish because they kind of don't already. But let's say that like they upgrade the rotation or at least break even on the rotation, continue to win some games. The Reds are in free fall. You just got to find a way for the Brewers to start sucking. You never know. 11 and a half games back is a lot. I don't anticipate any of this happening. But if you win every series the rest of July, you get get a little closer. But I, I do still believe that they've got to sell. They've got to look for trades of Hicks, of Montgomery, of Flaherty. Because this should be a team that can contend in 2024. The rotation, it, well, and the bullpen are the two things you've really got to fix. The lineup is still good. I think it needs tweaks with some of the the defensive orientations not always making sense. But I also don't think there's anything Ollie Marmol can do about that. He did not sign Wilson Contreras, and that is going to bring about some defensive quirkiness in the years to come. It just is. Because Wilson is not going to catch 162 games. He might not catch 100 games. Especially if Avon Herrera is looking good behind the plate. And Andrew Kisner is looking good. I don't know what they're going to do. They've got three catchers for now. Kiz came back today, had a base knock, had an RBI, did his thing behind the plate. Jack Flaherty said really good things. They got three catchers for now. Luke and Baker was the uh, the victim there going back to Memphis. They weren't really using him anyway. I don't know what they do with these three catchers, but I just think if you're prioritizing and, and looking about what that 2024 roster could kind of represent and what it could look like, I just think defensively there's some weirdness going on and trading away a position player could help to alleviate it, or it could make it worse because maybe you trade away the wrong guy and the guy that you still have or the guys you still have, they don't end up hitting, and it's a whole other thing, just like we've seen like the revolving door in the outfield in recent years. But you make some of those things happen? I don't know. I think 2024 should absolutely be a, uh, a time for the Cardinals to be able to c- kind of restake their claim of this division. Doesn't need to be a, wrong, a long rebuild. I don't think the bullpen does have to be addressed. I think right now you've got, if Helsley's back, if they don't trade Helsley, you've got Helsley, you've got Jojo Romero, who is, who looked good today and could start to uh, kind of position himself to be that lefty next year because Cabby does not look, he's not looking good. Cabrera, but Jojo's got an ERA of 2.93. Now a couple of good outings in a row for him. And he went an inning in two thirds today. So that was nice to see. Stratton had a nice inning. He's got the ERA now below four, but he's a free agent to be. I guess you could bring him back, though. He he seemed, you know, if he likes St. Louis, I don't know what he would cost. To me, you don't want him to be like a super leverage guy, but if he's your kind of seventh inning guy, Chris Stratton, that's okay. But other than that, I don't know if I'm bringing anybody back. Cabrera, I don't know what you do with Palante. I really like Andre Palante, but I, I mean, he has really struggled with the, the role that they have asked him to fill so far this season. So I don't know. I The bullpen's going to need a complete overhaul, but we know that a lot of the issue too is the rotation. We're volunteering to say, hey, get rid of your two of your most reliable starters. So there will have to be a reckoning and a way to answer for that. But I think if you make some trades where you acquire some pieces, like in theory, if you're trading Montgomery, Flaherty, and Hicks, out of all three of that, you should get a pitcher, a starting pitcher, that you can plug in for 2024. That's got to be the goal. You don't need to trade for position players. You've got them. Unless you're getting a bonafide stud somewhere, and I think the only position that you really could be open-minded to that would be the outfield because a left-handed hitting legit outfielder would always fit in well. 
but they've also got a bunch of outfielders. Like you have to, it's the same thing that it was before the season. You have to trade away from your 40 man roster and fill needs that you don't currently have occupied. But like on the 40 man roster on the 26 man is Alec Burleson, a left-handed hitting outfielder. So do you find a deal that moves him or, you know, you package a one, Juan Yepes, not left-handed, but similar story of like, if you're going after the type of thing that these guys could conceivably bring to the table, it wouldn't make sense to just add to the redundancy, but can you get value for the players that you're basically trying to upgrade their spot? Can you get some level of value for those guys in a different trade or are you just cutting bait and it's Adolis Garcia again? Those are some of the weird machinations that John Mozalek is going to have to figure out. But it's fun to think about. I think this is a very fun time of year when it comes to the St. Louis Cardinals team because talking about the team on the field has not been that fun. Give them credit. They've won 5 of 7, but also give them credit for where they are in the standings, last place. Although, one game behind Pittsburgh. Those Cardinals are coming, Pirates. They're, they're on the way, baby. But 11 and a half games back. So I think this is a fun time of year because of what we can do in terms of Dreaming for the future and imagining for the not too distant future. What is this team going to look like on August 1st? Really intriguing to find out. I'm ready to find out. But we'll see these next couple of weeks uh, unfold. It's going to be hot and heavy here on B-Shape Daily. Daily podcasts, daily Cardinals conversations, videos as needed when there's breaking news or different things going on. We're going to be covering on this channel. You don't want to miss out. Make sure you click that subscribe button. Click the bell for notifications and subscribe to B-Shape Daily on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Daily Cardinals content, it's right here. Appreciate you guys so much for listening. Make sure to get those comments in on YouTube. Let me know what you think about the current state of the Cardinals. Who should stay? Who should go? How should they be approaching this situation now that they're actually winning a little bit? Does that matter to you? Should that be something that changes their mindset into maybe holding serve and, and trying to, to ride this thing out? I still think... 11 and a half games is far too many to be taking that mindset, but wrapping off a, a quick seven wins in a row here against Miami and then the Cubs as they go to Wrigley Field this coming weekend, maybe that changes things before the deadline. Let me know what you think. Keep me posted on your thoughts, and I'll keep you posted on mine right here on B-Shape Daily and the Brendan Schaefer YouTube channel. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace.